Newly Eberty is the art and state of being a woman, and I think that should be celebrated. My name is Michelle Lyons. Welcome to the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast is for information only and not a substitute for consulting a healthcare professional. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. I'm flying solo today because I wanted to do a Pelvicon wrap-up. So many great speakers, great presentations, and, you know, it was just an amazing experience to be there in person. It is the last day that you can purchase the recordings from the Pelvicon speakers. So if you purchase, you get access to all of the recordings, the video recordings of the presentations and a PDF of all the presentations, mine included. What I thought might be useful would be to kind of run through the different presentations and just give you some of the clinical pearls and highlights as we do that and maybe um, answer some of the questions that I got about my presentations along the way. So on day one of Pelvicon, I was privileged to be the very first speaker and I talked about the evil triplets of female pelvic pain. Now, there is a full online course on female pelvic pain rehab dealing with these triplets of endometriosis, interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome and pudendal neuralgia. And in the online course, we talk about, you know, their first cousins as well, like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, vulvodynia, adenomyosis, all the other pelvic neuralgias and the other chronic overlapping pain conditions. But I had 40 minutes to talk about these three triplets. So I started off by talking about the prevalence of these issues, I suppose, first of all, you know, endometriosis alone affects one in nine people who menstruate worldwide. I started with pudendal neuralgia because I think it's often a fairly intimidating diagnosis for many of us working in pelvic health to get. And the importance of understanding the anatomy and the dermatomes and the myotomes of the pudendal nerve, because I think a lot of things get diagnosed as pudendal neuralgia that actually aren't. So the theme kind of running through my presentation for this topic was really the importance of integrating the bio and the psycho and the social. So from a bio perspective, yes, understanding the pudendal nerve, its anatomical pathway, but then also the fear and the anxiety that this persistent, seemingly untreatable, unless you come to a good pelvic health therapist, um, pain syndrome can really cause. So I talked about the anatomical pathway, but I also talked about the importance of screening for other conditions that can mimic pudendal neuralgia and the relationship between pudendal neuralgia and pelvic floor dysfunction. Then I moved into talking about interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, as it's more widely known. And we talked about how many people who have endometriosis will be diagnosed with ICBPS, that huge overlap. And what can we do to address these issues? Because certainly we know that pelvic rehab has a central part, but it must be a psychologically informed approach to this as well. The main themes that emerge from the research that really drive good patient satisfaction with treatment outcomes are yes, to manage the physical symptoms, but also to address and deal with the emotional symptoms as well. The impact on daily life, the socio-contextual factors um, and addressing somebody's needs in treatment, really listening to them. And that was from a research paper by McKernan et al. 
But I spent a fair bit of time talking about the Clemens 2022 paper, um, looking at what makes IC better, what makes it worse. Of course, constipation was in there as well. And then for the final part of my presentation, I talked about endometriosis, how it's a multi-system inflammatory condition, but how that we know that the standard treatments for endo, whether we're talking about surgical or medical or a pelvic rehab approach, they don't benefit all patients. We know that, you know, a significant amount of people still have ongoing pain. So this is where we can really bring in a bit of depth of knowledge talking about central sensitization. And we talked about screening for it and we talked about treating it. And the frustration that a lot of people have when they still have pain after surgery, you know, they get their diagnosis, they have surgery and they think it's all going to be great. But unfortunately, it's not always that case. What can we do to help people with endometriosis live well, no matter what part of the journey they're on, what treatment path they're pursuing and our role in dealing with inflammation and central sensitization? And, you know, we had some good discussions about that. The next speaker was Jessica Drummond, and she looked at really moving from exhausted to alive. What does that look like, both for us as clinicians, but also for the people that we're serving? And so some of the takeaways and challenges that Jessica presented were to, you know, during your next patient intake session, ask what does being successfully healed look like to you? And what are you willing to let go of to achieve that goal? And then she challenged us to share with one of our colleagues one thing that scares you about letting go of control of your patient's healing journey and letting go of you being the hero of that journey as well. So she talked about clear, you know, really clearly identifying what's important in terms of the individual and their definitions of health and their health goals. And what parts can we influence? You know, whether that's sleep, rest, recovery, movement, fitness, strength, their work, their parenting, their relationships, their nourishment, but also to look and see where health exists and where we can build on that. Because for most of us, we are, we're busy, we're frazzled most of the time, aren't we? She talked about how in a hustle culture, patriarchal, misogynistic, ableist, racist, classist, transphobic, homophobic, individualistic, traumatic society with worsening air, water and food quality, pharmaceutical and profit driven healthcare system with a fraying social fabric, record levels of loneliness and no financial safety net. How could you possibly feel safe in that? So, you know, that's a recurring theme that I have that we have to build this therapeutic alliance based on that polyvagal concept of safety and connection. So living and you know really enjoying your life even if you haven't met all your health goals yet so she had some strategies for dealing with that the next speaker was yushana osai uc osai um really taking a fantastic dive on sex counseling for the pelvic rehab professional she talked about how we have to be very clear on our definitions um a sex counselor versus a therapist and really if we are working in pelvic health that we all embrace this role of counseling 
and know when to refer on to a therapist as well. To know your own story and your own biases, perhaps, but also evolving your clinical lens to be intersexual. Uh, intersectional. Um, to add this biopsychosocial framework, this was very much a recurring theme of the weekend in assessment and education. Um, to be comfortable with questioning about sexual health. And she talked about how sexual health is a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well being in relation to sexuality, not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected and fulfilled. And what's our role in doing that? You know, are we comfortable interviewing people about their, their sexual lives? So when we're talking to people about this aspect of their health and well-being, she encouraged us to define the problem in as much detail as possible. Is it primary or secondary to another disorder? Is it situational, generalized or lifelong? To ask when and under what conditions the sexual pro problem manifested, what might have caused it or triggered it, such as trauma, sexual intercourse with a new partner to assess beliefs and backgrounds and to ask about activity and satisfaction before the onset of the problem. Honestly, one of my favorite presentations of the weekend um, would highly recommend following UC on social media. Jake Bartholomew was next and he talked about anal sex, what rehab providers need to know. So Jake encouraged us to look at our intake paperwork. Does it allow or encourage a place for honesty about sexual practices? Um, for us to look at our subjective interviewing and are we asking matter-of-factly about anal intercourse? Um, and are we comfortable not only asking the questions but knowing what to do with the answers? Are we ready to do a bit of myth busting about it from a safety perspective? Because it generally is a safe sexual practice with the right preparation and we want to reassure people but we want to address any of their potential concerns as well there are considerations for safety like fissures or prolapse or hemorrhoids of course stis because we know that intestinal mucosa absorbs hiv more readily than vaginal mucosa but he talked really eloquently about, you know, starting small, using things like dilators or wands or even O-nuts afterwards, about the right type of lube to use. So a really useful presentation. Next up, Munira Hudani. This was a really powerful and thought-provoking presentation about whether you call it diastasis or diastasis, really, again, bringing that biopsychosocial. Mira challenged us to consider that in our subjective history, do we ask our clients specifically why they would like help closing their gap? And just to be able to go a little bit deeper than I want a flat stomach, but also to research mental health professionals in your area who specialize in postpartum mental health and or body image, and just to make sure that you have those resources handy for referral. So very much looking at the psychosocial context of uh, postpartum recovery in general, really moving from this bounce back culture, you know, get your pre baby body back diet culture um, into really moving this 
to this position of the fourth trimester honoring your body, how my body has changed and so have I, and really embracing a body positivity um, movement with this. Um, the psychosocial context is terrifying for many people after they have babies. Um, you know, Munira quoted some really interesting research, and this is from Cromart et al. in 2022. Most of the women expressed feeling ashamed of their belly, and many described a constant awareness of their belly bulging outwards looking pregnant. Others tried to repress their belly from their conscience. And to understand the mental representation of one's body that's so tied with both body image and body dissatisfaction, and how can we compassionately meet people where they're at on this journey? So really bringing, again, truly that biopsychosocial approach into postpartum recovery. Asking people just, you know, quite plainly, why would you like the gap to close? Is it to do with changes in body appearance? Is it to do with relationships or your social interaction into changes in body function and ability? And then what have they done so far on their treatment and recovery journey? And of course, then exploring our role in helping. Next up was Taryn Hallam. Now, I'm lucky I've had the opportunity to listen to Taryn present before, so I knew people were in for a treat. Her first presentation were, was to talk about the role of pessaries and to really challenge us to think, do we think this person's management could benefit from the addition of a pessary? And to remind us that we do have some good objective measurement skills in our toolbox, measuring things like GH plus PB, but also how does their vaginal length, their vaginal vault width compare with their levator hiatus width? And what's the right type of pessary for them? Is it going to be a ring? Do they have good levator ani function? Do they have, would they be better off maybe with a cube if they haven't got uh, good levator shelves to hold a ring pessary? So understanding and appreciating the differences between fascial support and pelvic floor muscle support and where the two intertwine and overlap, what we can influence with pelvic floor muscle training and what we can't and how it doesn't have to be either or, it could be both and. We can use the pessary to hold the organs up out of the way while we rehab the muscles underneath because ultimately our goal is to help people live well. So using everything we have in our toolbox. Next was Yenny Abraham uh, from Dallas, Texas, talking about um, our role in supporting fertility. And this is a really scope of practice expanding concept, I think. So Yenny challenged us to make sure, and you know, this is something that I am personally very passionate about, include cycle investigation in evaluations. If you are working with people who menstruate, you've got to ask them about their menstrual cycle. So Yenny also said that we should be changing our intake forms to add critical fertility questions and normalize discussing fertility related history, even if their chief complaint is unrelated to a fertility problem. So we, you know, the research talks about some pelvic rehab uh, centric approaches to fertility. We know that improving blood flow in the pelvis to the reproductive organs is going to be important. And of course, optimizing sexual function. 
relieving that sense of stress and anxiety, so down training the nervous system, possibly looking at post-surgical rehabilitation, so a restoration of normal pelvic function, including the addressing of scar tissue and adhesions. So using our manual therapy skills, combined that with nutrition, with movement, with stress management, with sleep, this is really where we can play a role in supporting people on these fertility journeys. Um, she had some really great case studies. She did talk about contraindications and out of scope problems as well. So that's a really important facet too. Next up, Sarah Reardon from uh, New Orleans had a really great panel discussion about expanding our reach in the pelvic health arena. And Sarah led the panel in a discussion about how we can pinpoint different avenues of marketing to increase awareness of pelvic health services, to identify digital media platforms that we can use to disseminate pelvic health education to our community, and also how to develop a strategy that we can use to grow our reach in using both in-person and digital media. Um, the panel was phenomenal. We had Dr. Brianne Grogan, um, who many of you will know uh, from at Vibrant Pelvic Health and her adventures on YouTube. Alicia Jeffrey Thomas is at the pelvic dance floor. Uh, Mamua Burke is Dr. Mamua Burke on Instagram. And Brittany Sargent is Bloom Pelvic Therapy. So an interesting fact from this presentation that the awareness of pelvic floor therapy has grown by 830% over the past 10 years, if we're looking at searches on social media. And what we need to consider is, if we are not providing good pelvic health information online, who will? And how can we use that then to expand awareness of what we can do to help people? So some really great questions about the different platforms, whether it was TikTok or YouTube, um, or Instagram, of course, and they gave some great pearls of wisdom about really getting comfortable with your own online presence to pick something that resonates with you. That was Pelvicon day one. Next up, Pelvicon day two. And Yusi was back talking about moving from pain to pleasure when it comes to sexual health. And really, again, full of great takeaways here. Understanding sexual uh, building blocks and models. Uh, she talked a lot about brain activation during sexual arousal. Um, but also, again, taking that really important intersectional approach, looking at how, for example, racism can really impact us on a physiological level, looking at adverse childhood events, how we take all of this and embed us really into our, our psyche as we move forwards. She talked about social determinants of pleasure, you know, and also what are we bringing to the table in terms of what lens are we looking through when we're talking to people about this? What about our roles? You know, how do our identities, or whether that's our race, our gender, our age, how do they impact the conversations that we're having? And then really, helping people have open, honest and productive conversations about this, whether it's an acceptance of pain and how that sits with um, exploring sexual pleasure, but also what do we define as sexual success? How do we redefine and reinvent pleasure? 
So she talked about pleasure mapping, you know, really finding out what feels good to you, both as a partnered part as a partnered sexual activist or when you're flying solo, being mindful, dealing with sexual shame, um, integrating sensate focus as part of your mindfulness uh, practice. Really, really great usable tips and tools that we can take away. Next up, Yenny Abraham was back, and this was a really important discussion, uh, looking at religious and cultural cons considerations when it comes to pelvic health. Um, she looked, you know, in an in-depth way at the common challenges and barriers that we face in pelvic health generally, um, and maybe barriers to effective communication and care, but also how religion and culture are interrelated. So a deep dive into common beliefs, practices and values related to pelvic health from uh, the world of Islam, from Judaism, from Christianity, various denominations and from Mormonism. And I think some really useful, you know, some some strategies, some insights that we can take away in being sensitive about asking questions and just being honest about our own lack of knowledge in these areas and how we can use these as conversation starters to, again, help people live well. Then we had Taryn Hallam back on the stage again, and Taryn was back this time to talk about stress incontinence and do a little bit of myth busting as well. Um, and some of the questions she asked were, have we determined whether poor levator ani function truly is a major factor in this person's SUI, their stress urinary incontinence? And for many people, of course, the answer will be no, it'll be a sphincter deficiency problem. And we have to deal with that, whether it's um, an intrinsic sphincter deficiency or is it sphincter hypermobility? Do you think there could be significant fascial dysfunction that may be impacting on the chance that retraining the levator ani will be successful? And is your retraining program likely to be facilitating urethral sphincter retraining? So it's very much all about the sphincter, which is a part of the pelvic floor that I feel is often overlooked when it comes to the effective treatment of stress incontinence. So she did a great review of the pathophysiology underpinning stress incontinence. And she talked about pressure dynamics in stress incontinence and the different factors that can play into all of this. So less of an emphasis on levator, more of an emphasis on the urethral sphincter was one of the big takeaways from Taryn's talk, um, which was done at her characteristically high speed adventure. Jake Bartholomew was back again after that, and he talked about the evaluation and treatment of erectile dysfunction. Now, he talked about the different types of ED, whether that was organic or psychogenic or situational. And then he really did a beautiful job exploring the, the anatomy, the physiology of all of this, about what can go wrong. And acknowledging that we do have a role to play in prevention as well. Lifestyle is huge here. Um, we know that erectile dysfunction can often be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to heart health, because of course they're both um, deeply tied into the vascular system. So Jake talked about, you know, how really seeking treatment for issues like heart disease, but obesity, diabetes, to make sure that people are seeing their PCPs for regular checkups and tests, to talk about smoking cessation, um, reducing or eliminating alcohol, taking steps to reduce stress, and making sure people are exercising regularly and seeking help for mental health 
as needed. Of course, we know that ED is a huge issue after prostatectomy as well. And despite advancements in surgical techniques like nerve sparing prostatectomies, um, less than 40% do regain enough erectile function for sufficient intercourse. So what can we do? We can control the controllables. We can certainly, you know, have conversations about the medications that are out there, the microsurgery um, options. But from a therapeutic perspective, making sure that relaxation, meditation, exercise and diet, the correct use of things like vacuum pumps and pelvic floor rehab are all part of the picture as well. Um, and Jake challenged us then to maybe look at our intake paperwork. Does it allow a place for sexual health or any changes in your sexual health? And just, you know, are you comfortable asking questions about erection health or changes with that? After Jake, um, I was back up again, and this time I was talking about hysterectomy. Um, hysterectomy is the second most common surgery carried out on females in the US after C-sections. And I really focused on a prehab and immediately post-op rehab perspective. Um, because 80% of hysterectomies are planned, they're non-emergent. Unless you're having like a cesarean hysterectomy, maybe to control bleeding afterwards, most of the hysterectomies are performed in a non-emergency situation. And my soapbox is that we can really help people recover a lot faster if we see them preoperatively. So we do our prehab and then we know what to do from an immediate post-op rehab perspective and then moving into a longer term. So I talked about how we are seeing research around this, particularly from the world of cancer rehab and bowel health, the enhanced recovery after surgery approach. Um, and we're going to see this coming in more and more because it does help people get better faster, fewer infection rates, gets them out of the hospital quicker. So it's a win-win situation. I also then talked about immediate post-op recovery. So I talked about post-op bowel health, about wound healing, about managing intra-abdominal pressure. I talked about scar mobility and pain after hysterectomy and what we need to be aware of. And of course, just general pelvic health considerations like GSM, stress urinary incontinence and sexual health after hysterectomy and really embracing our role as educators around that and facilitating the return to exercise after hysterectomy. Now, we'll have a new hysterectomy course coming out, and that's going to be coming uh, hopefully next month. So stay tuned. We'll have some podcasts about that coming your way. Munira was back after this to talk about abdominoplasty, uh, navigating the mummy makeover, and how we can really work well with our local plastic surgeons who are performing this surgery um, for better outcomes for everybody concerned. Um, she did some myth busting around abdominoplasty, that surgery leads to too much pressure on the pelvic floor, or surgery leads to a perfectly flat stomach, that surgery is the easy or the lazy way out, and that you can always avoid surgery with physical therapy and exercise. And she busted some holes in those theories as well. Um, really lovely just overview of moving from immediately post-op into medium and long-term, taking into consideration tissue healing timelines, and just that long-term approach to navigating and managing symptoms the whole way through. 
and how we can really make a huge difference in the tummy tuck journey that we we have to meet people where they are and support them to live well and finally Jessica Drummond wrapped it all up at the end of day two. So this was part two of her presentation, moving from being exhausted to alive and really looking at exploring resources for personal ownership of health data and tracking. So using different uh, fitness tracking tools and apps, whether it's your Apple Watch or your Aura Ring, um, but also beginning to collect data on one area of your own health as a practitioner that could use improvement and defining our health goals for that area. Um, she talked about how many of our patients seem to be dealing with increasing complexity with less support. But if we're going to establish a true framework for healing, we have to look at things like functional nutrition, nervous system regulation, my favorite digestive immune gut microbiome, um, the detoxification functions that we have, whether that's the breath, the bowel, the bladder, the skin. Do we understand what's happening hormonally? Uh, what is happening from a musculoskeletal and a fascial health perspective? And a really just deep dive into nervous system regulation, particularly as it pertains to persistent pain. But to wrap it up, she talked about, you know, where do we begin? And this is where using or developing your coaching skills can be vital. So thinking about where is your client ready to begin? What are her specific health or life goals? And what area feels easiest for her to begin with? And I will just say personally, adding health coaching into my skill set was an absolute game changer in terms of preventing uh, burnout and giving that responsibility and power back to the person that we're working with. Um, it can really change your whole outlook on patient care, whether that's using you know, skills like motivational interviewing, being able to assess their readiness to change, um, looking at the barriers they have to making change. And, you know, how can we recognize these aspects of behavior change in the people that we're trying to help? So I will have a masterclass coming out on that. So it'll be shorter than my usual monstrously big uh, intensive courses. I want to give you a usable masterclass on using tools like understanding that trans theoretical readiness to change model. What can we do to motivate, bring in mindfulness and compassion, but also having the evidence to see, well, what are the outcome measures that we can use to assess somebody's readiness to change? And how does this all pertain to pelvic health? So that's going to be coming out in November. So stay tuned on Instagram. I will be following up a lot with that. Just to wrap up, I got a couple of questions after my two presentations. So I'm just going to run through them here and hopefully there'll be some useful takeaways for you with that. Um, for my first presentation on the evil triplets of pelvic pain, I got questions, multiple questions asking me about can we use TENS for tibial nerve stimulation for bladder urgency frequency? And the short answer is yes, we can. And what I'm going to do is refer you back to episode three in season one of this podcast, where Fiona Rogers came on and we did a deep dive on all the evidence behind tibial nerve stimulation using TENS. Uh, other questions that came in, central sensitization, your favorite ways to deal with it. And for me, with central sensitization, first of all, assess it, make sure that you are dealing with somebody with a centrally sensitized 
nervous system. Understand that overlap between central sensitization and inflammation. And then really taking this whole person anti-inflammatory approach to creating safety and decreasing fear. So that might be addressing sleep. It might be addressing nutrition. It might be finding a movement pattern that doesn't hurt and focusing on that and just expanding the realm of safety. So very much dependent, again, on that polyvagal approach of context for why you're doing what you're doing, choices about what the person is going to do, and clear communication and connection. Um, the best advice to give mothers of girls, uh, teenage girls with painful heavy periods before jumping to birth control. Don't just slap a band-aid of birth control on it if somebody's having painful periods. We want to do a deep dive and find out why, remembering that endometriosis affects one in nine. But it could be a number of other issues as well. Um, and that kind of followed on to another question that I got. Well, if we're talking a lot about tracking menstrual cycles, which you know I love to talk about, what are the main things that we should look for, you know, apart from pain with periods? Because there are lots of other issues that could be causing irregular or painful periods. So we want to be on the lookout for things like PCOS or red S or even premature ovarian insufficiency. So I look for patterns. You know, what what problems are you having? Because you're having a problem if you're coming to see somebody like me. And let's look and see what aggravates, what eases it. Is there a cyclical pattern to when these problems appear? And then we can start to unravel and do some detective work as to why what's happening is happening. Um, can you track your menstrual cycle while you're on birth control uh, or you're not ovulating or menstruating? Well, you can track for patterns that emerge, but the whole premise of birth control is that it's suppressing ovulation and your menstrual cycle and giving you um, exogenous artificial hormones to stop you getting pregnant. So it's a little bit trickier. It's why I think, you know, we regard the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign and it gives us so much good information. So you can't really track menstrual health if you're on birth control pills, uh, unfortunately. Um, what is a normal amount of discomfort during period? A bit of light cramping day one, day two. Anything that stops you from participating in school or work or your life that needs investigation. That is too much pain. Painful periods are not normal. Can you have symptoms of the evil triplets at menopause? Yes. This is one of the things that I talk about in the female pelvic pain rehab course in the updated endo section. Um, we have for too long neglected both adolescence and menopausal women with endometriosis because you can have your periods can be okay during your reproductive years, but then as you're moving into perimenopause and you stop ovulating, you don't have that progesterone there to counteract the effects of estrogen. And this is when the symptoms of endometriosis can really jump up. Um, some of the questions that came up then from the hysterectomy presentation that I'll just quickly run through. What does the perfect post-op hysterectomy protocol look like? Well, I would say I covered that in the hysterectomy course. I covered it in a little bit of detail in the Pelvicon recordings, but essentially prehab, inpatient post-op, and then a medium to long-term uh, approach that has pelvic health centrally, 
but a whole person approach to returning to movement afterwards. I talked about binders and abdominal supports and how they can be really useful for decreasing that overhang that some women can have, particularly if they've had an open hysterectomy. So generally, I recommend the question was how often and how long should people wear them? I generally, you know, if you're going to be up and about during the day, I think it's a good idea to have a little bit of support on, certainly for the first, I would say, two or three months post-op. Um, I advise people to lie down for 20 minutes twice a day, early afternoon and late afternoon, um, because gravity can really keep a lot of that lymphatic stagnation around the scars stuck. Um, what do I recommend for nutrition and post-op recovery? Well, vitamin C, really, really great for wound healing. Um, barriers to wound healing are stress and inflammatory foods. So again, think highly processed, um, high sugar, high processed fats. Um, we want to think about a primarily whole food, healthy, plant-based approach, making sure there's enough protein in there to meet needs. Um, what are my thoughts on hysterectomy for gender affirmation? This is definitely, I would say, a scenario where we need to have a good prehab uh, protocol in place because there are huge psychosocial aspects to deal with as well as the bio here as well. Why are doctors reluctant to prescribe vaginal estrogen afterwards? I don't know. The evidence is very supportive of its safety, so I don't know. Um, having an excision surgery for endometriosis, should my patient have a hysterectomy at the same time? Why? Why should they? Um, if they don't have something like adenomyosis, I would just question the value of removing an organ system like the uterus. And then sexual health after hysterectomy. I talked a little bit about this. Things that we have to think about for sexual health after hysterectomy would be changes to the vagina in terms of length and width and declining levels of estrogen. Um, we might also want to think about ergonomics from a positioning perspective, particularly if the vaginal cuff has been attached to the sacrospinous ligament. So a conversation about lube, about pelvic floor rehab, about um, sexual ergonomics, about using devices like the O-Nut. Really, it's about sitting down and finding out, as UC said, what their goals are, what sexual success and health looks like to them and then working with them to prevent or deal with any problems that arise. Okay, a whirlwind trip through Pelvicon. Hopefully um, you got a glimpse of some of the things that we talked about. Strongly encourage you to follow all those people on Instagram because they're giving out some great clinical information. Um, today's the last day. If you're listening to this podcast and the day it comes out, Tuesday the 19th is the last day. You can buy the Pelvicon recordings. Um, if you were at Pelvicon, remember you have 50% off any of my online courses. Um, so you will have had a coupon in your swag bag for that. If you have any questions, let me know. And the dates for Pelvicon 2024 have been set. It's one of my favorite conferences. I can't recommend it highly enough. So hopefully I will see you there. I'll be back next week with normal programming. Um, I have a very special guest lined up for you next week that I'm excited to share her wisdom with, with you all. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and don't forget to celebrate Muleyberty. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
If you prefer to watch, all the videos of the interviews will be uploaded onto YouTube. If you'd like to learn more, there's a full suite of online courses on women's health, including courses on female pelvic pain rehab, female hormonal health, oncology rehab, and more. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Michelle Lyons underscore Muley for special offers and announcements. Until the next time, celebrate Muley Thanks for listening. Bye for now.